I got 11 o'clock, so we'll get started. My name's Jeff Brown. This class is Neighbors, and we're going to talk about what it means to see neighbors and to be neighbors and to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. Um, I'm going to suggest that the Good Samaritan, which is the text we're going to read, this well-worn parable, is a really good script and guide uh, for navigating things like racial injustice, tension, and the suffering that uh, we are engulfed by uh, today. So if you want to open up to the text, we're going to read it and look at it from a couple different uh, vantage points. Luke 10, 25. I'll start by reading it. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? What do you read? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured out oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, came, uh, gave them to the innkeeper and said that he would come back, telling him, I will repay you whatever you spend, whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So we're going to look at the text from two different perspectives. And I know it's common for us to jump into the story and find ourselves as one of the characters to imagine which person might we be. Am I the priest? Am I the Levite? Could I be the Samaritan? But for this first perspective, we're going to start where the story starts. And the story starts from the plight of a wounded traveler. So before we identify ourselves as one of the three who pass by, I want to encourage you to look again at this well-worn parable from the vantage point of the ditch through the swollen eyes of the wounded traveler because the story looks different from the ditch. Jesus says the man fell into the hands of thieves. And there are three words that tell the whole story from the vantage point of the ditch. The thieves stripped him, beat him, and left him. And while everyone else goes on their way, and life goes on for everyone else, 
the Bible reminds us uh, that thieves come to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what they did. They stripped him of his clothes and his dignity. They beat him. And I don't know if it was with a club or a fist, but they beat him up badly enough to when they left him, they assumed he would die. So most of the time we run past this part of the story um, like we're 10 minutes late in traffic. And we say, yeah, yeah, yeah he was hurt. He, he was hurt. We, we know he was hurt. But when you look from the vantage point of the ditch, we don't get to fast forward through these words. So I want to invite you to, to linger with me for a minute over these words. Um, they stripped him, beat him and left him. And I wonder how many of our own stories could be told with those three words. How many stories of addiction, our addiction, could we tell with those three words? Addiction that set in and it stripped us of a marriage, of a family, a sense of control and hope. And addiction comes in lots of forms, doesn't it? It could be in something we swallow, something we inject, something we can't stop clicking on, but still it strips us of life and hope and then beats us up in this endless cycle of guilt and despair. And then addiction makes a lousy friend because it always leaves us alone. To feel like we are alone, stripped, beaten, and left. We all know the cost of addiction. Uh, whether it has come in your own experience or the life of someone you love. Or what about those of us who have been hit with the club of depression? Stripped, beat, and left. Stripped of meaning and drive and hope. Beat into the ground. And if you've had depression set in, you know it's in this, this, this cycle where there is despair and shame. And why do I feel the way I feel beat up in that, and then left to feel alone with the great sadness. It isn't as obvious or as instantaneous as other attacks, but if you've been hit by the club of depression, you know that these three words tell our story. Stripped, beaten, left. How many Me Too stories uh, have we heard in our church, in our churches, over the last couple years? Stories of harassment and abuse, stories that started with an unsolicited advance. It started there, but then it, it falls into these same three words. When a man or a woman was stripped of control, robbed of dignity by someone who didn't have any decency, they are stripped and then beaten, sometimes with words, other times with fist, and then Maybe the worst part of it is left to feel alone. Who could I tell that would believe me? What would, it would, it, would it even matter if I told anyone? What would happen to my job? Stripped, beaten, left. And if it's not a me too story, I think a lot of us could tell stories that, that are caught up in a way of life that might be characterized by me first. You know, we decide to, to live life, and I'm going to think about me first. I'm going to take care of me and mine, and then I'll worry about someone else, perhaps. And 
And it looks good at first, but it is a tool of the enemy. And eventually we come back to these same three words. Because when you live a life that is me first, at some point or another, you will be stripped of hope and purpose. What purpose is left when life was about me, and even that feels hollow, beat up, and left alone. See, the thing that was supposed to fix my problem leaves me alone with my problem. I think about addiction and depression, this selfishness or self-righteousness. I will tell you at times I've been drawn to a way of life and an understanding of God that places all responsibility on my own shoulders. It is my job to secure my salvation, to have the right answers to the right questions at the right time, and to execute it all in the right way if I am going to be right before the Father. And at some point or another, that way of life will lead you to these same three words, stripped of the illusion that I could ever get it all right. Beat up with vivid memories of all my own moral failures, and then left left alone to wither away. Addiction, depression, self-righteousness, me too, me first. I wonder how many weapons does the enemy have? Psalm 3 starts with these words. Um, Lord, I have so many enemies. And when I read the psalm, I think, oh, I, don't, I don't think I have that many. There are a few people who don't like me. Um, but I don't have that many enemies. And then I come back to this text and I think, how many weapons does the enemy have? Uh, and whether it's addiction or depression or selfishness or self-righteousness, something that happened to you or something that, that you had a part of, when you look at this story from the vantage point of the ditch, we remember that this isn't just a story. It isn't just an old story. It is our story, our shared story. And so the psalmist continues, Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are standing against me. So many are talking about me. Even God won't help him. Even God won't help him. And you remember the despair from the ditch. And you look through your swollen eyes and know I can't do this on my own. It is our story, but it is not our whole story because there's a man who came down the road. A man came down the road. It is a man that none of us would have interviewed as a potential star of this story. Um, it is a Samaritan man, a good Samaritan. And the Samaritan sees the travelers. And watch how the words change. Because I, I realize the priest and the Levite, they see the man, but there's something different because the Samaritan stares into the suffering of this wounded traveler and then the words begin to change. Stripped, beaten, left. But when the Samaritan comes, he bandages and tends to the wounds with oil and wine. The Samaritan places the wounded traveler in his own seat on his own donkey and he cares for his needs, all of his needs, and promises to do what? I'll come back, and I will pay off the balance. It's not just that he cared for him once on the other side of the road. And if you pay attention to those verbs, then this story should sound joyfully familiar, because Christ saw us. 
He saw us in a way no one else could or would. He sees us in a way no one else does. And he came to us in the same way the Samaritan came to this man. He comes to us. I know sometimes we talk about um, I was lost and I found Jesus. But the problem is that that we were lost. Jesus wasn't lost. It's not that we found him. It is that he found us. He came to us. He bandages our wounds. Christ does not ignore wounds. He doesn't minimize wounds. He bandages them. Christ doesn't shrug his shoulders or turn his head at addiction or depression or abuse. Christ doesn't cover things up and pretend like they aren't there. Churches sometimes have covered wounds. Churches, regrettably, we have silenced the abused at times, but Christ bandages wounds. Christ says, come to me, all who are weary and worn out, and he bandages our wounds. He tends to them with oil and wine. The enemy branded us as worthy of a club to the face, but Christ names us worthy of oil and wine. He bandages our wounds, and then he places us, so he bandages, and then he places us in his seat, on his animal, on his donkey. He makes sure that we are called by his name. We are his sons and his daughters, and he cares for us, present tense, promises to come back to us. It is true. When you read this story the Samaritan demonstrated extravagant love. But how extravagant is the love of Christ? And so I come back to that third psalm. Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are talking about me. Even God won't help him. But then there's the turn. But you, Lord, are my shield. You are my glory. You are the one who restores me. I cry out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down, sleep, and wake up because the Lord helps me. That is our story. We were left alone in the ditch to die and then he came. And he promises to come back. We can't forget it. We are not saved because we are nice people. We are not saved because we are good people. We are saved because of Christ. And this first vantage point of this story from the ditch reminds us that we are all wounded travelers helped by the Samaritan Christ. And if we don't start there, if we don't realize that we have received extravagant mercy, then I'm not sure part two of this class is going to work. I'm not very confident in our ability to extend that mercy. See, this first view of the story from the vantage point of the ditch anchors us in humility. It clothes us with gratitude. And those are two things that we do not often carry into a conversation about racial tension, injustice, or suffering. I'll say it this way. I don't know if it's possible for us to extend extravagant mercy until we realize that we have received extravagant mercy. How many of you are familiar with the Jesus prayer? Right? Several iterations of the Jesus prayer, but it's, it's a simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I, I say it over and over and over again because I need to remember that I am the recipient of extravagant mercy. I was the wounded traveler helped by the Samaritan Christ. And we could stop there. Um, some of you might like me better if we did. Um, we would stop there if it were not for the last four words Jesus spoke. So after the parable, there's this dialogue between Jesus and the expert in the law. Which one of them do you think was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. And then what does Jesus say next? Go and do likewise. See, we are not called to just receive mercy, but also to extend mercy. And so now we'll turn from the vantage point of the ditch and look at the story again from the perspective of the people passing by. Who are the first two people down the road? So the priest and the Levite come down the road and they continue along the road as if they had never seen the man. Were the priest and the Levite awful people? If you were their attorney, you could defend them, right? After all, neither of these two men were involved in the attack. They didn't hurt him. And they didn't beat him up. I don't know if they knew who the person who did. Maybe they weren't awful. Maybe they were just busy. Maybe they were in a rush. Maybe they had legitimate reasons, religious reasons. Maybe they were citing Bible verses under their breath as they walked to the other side of the road. But I suspect we could compile quite a list of reasons why we might pass by. And even if we were inclined to help, what about all the unanswered questions? How did the man get there in the first place? This man who's beat up and left for dead. How do we know he wasn't a drug dealer or thug? What if he was dangerous? What if he was armed? How do we know that this man didn't get what he deserved? Not that we would ever ask that question of anyone who is suffering. And I wonder how many times in the last five years have we looked on someone who is suffering with the presumption of guilt. We turn on the news, we hear the stories, we see a photograph, and we just presume guilt. I wonder, are we really seeing people? Not, not just engaging in arguments, not reading headlines, but seeing people. And maybe I'm optimistic or naive, but I think. When the people of God really see people, we are overrun with compassion. But there are a few things that keep us from seeing people. The priest and the Levite see this man, and what do they do? They cross to the other side of the road. Why do we cross to the other side of the road? Why, when we pull up at a stoplight and there's somebody who needs help and we know we're not going to help them, do we look straight ahead? Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. See, I think there's something that happens when we see people. And this idea of crossing the road can work both, both ways. The, the priest and the Levite cross the road um, so that they don't have to see some things they don't want to see. I, I think 
there are plenty of ways that we continue to cross the road. People are suffering all around us, and what? Turn the channel. I, I turn the channel. I change my news source. We can tune it out. We can pull our kids out of that school. We can move into another neighborhood. We are actually quite proficient at crossing roads so that we don't have to see what we don't want to see. We cross roads all the time. But there's another way of crossing the road that has a completely different connotation, and that is what the Samaritan does. See, there's a way of crossing the road to consider the experience of someone else, someone who is suffering. How many of us know someone who has been afraid for their life in the middle of a routine traffic stop? How many of you know a mom who is genuinely afraid for her African-American son every time he leaves the house in a way that, that perhaps you didn't have to be? How many of you know a, a dreamer right now? How many of you know somebody who is torn up and really hurting by the racial rhetoric that is flooding our country. And I wonder if we can't raise our hands to every single one of those questions, is it because those people aren't there? Or could it be because we are power walking past them on the other side of the road? See, perspectives and experiences are not all the same, are they? You know, I started from the vantage point of the ditch, and I think it's essential that we realize we are all wounded travelers, that we have all received extravagant mercy, but we are not all wounded in the same ways. Injustice is not distributed equally, is it? Uh, there's a book, uh, Ferguson and Faith, um, professor who interviewed a lot of leaders and people who flocked to Ferguson uh, in the wake of Michael Brown's death in 2014. And in some of those interviews, there were um, more than a few white pastors who said, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that this is happening in my city. There were also uh, a number of African-American pastors who said something like, I can't believe it took this long to happen in our city. I sit in a prayer meeting in Jackson, Tennessee, shortly after that. It was a diverse gathering um, of clergy. And there was a white man who went to the microphone uh, and he looked around the room and he said, you know, this, what we're doing right now while we're meeting and praying. I talk to people around the city and I think about this and this is why I know Ferguson will never happen in our city. And the African-American pastor next to me leaned over and he said, I don't think we know the same people. <laughs> you know, if you want to see differences in perspective, then just ask a group of people, what does it mean to be a Ferguson? I wonder, what did the man mean when he said, I know Ferguson will never happen in our city? Because you talk to one person and, and you may be led to believe that, um, that the whole thing was brought on by the media. It was exaggerated and cited by the media, and you might be reminded uh, that 
that the case was more complicated than first portrayed, um, that there wasn't enough evidence to invite, indict the officer. But talk to someone else, and you'll be correctly reminded that there was enough systemic injustice unveiled that they shut the whole police department down. So, so was Ferguson a beginning place? Was it the beginning, or was it the breaking point? See, there's a reason so many people identified with the story. If every person carried around the same experiences with authority figures that I have had as a white male, then the story would not have resonated in the way that it did. But not everyone has the same experiences, do they? Last week, just last week, my six-year-old daughter got off the bus upset. Her older sister was really upset, too. And she came, and Aubrey didn't say anything. But Jaylee told me what happened on the bus. See, there was another kid who had moved away and said, um, I'm allergic to brown people. My daughter's African-American. I was on a flight coming to the lectures. I flew southwest. It's open seating, right? So you get a number. Uh, I was boarding number 17. There was an African-American woman in front of me who was number 18. I walked up. Hey, what number are you? Oh, 18. Oh, it's fine. But as we got closer to the gate, she stopped. And I said, no, 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 it's really, it's fine. Just go ahead. And she said, no, 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 you know how they get. And if you've ever been out of line and if you've ever had them pull you to the side and get on to you, you know you don't ever want that to happen again. And I heard her, but I thought, no, I don't know. I've been out of line plenty of times. I've never been made to feel like that. And then I got off the plane. Um, I went to pick up my rental car. And I was at the counter. I gave them my information, and they said, do you have uh, insurance, or do you want to be purchasing insurance? I said, no, 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 I don't, I don't need insurance. I have insurance. What company do you have insurance with? I said, ah, I don't know. I think, it I think it's auto owner. She said, OK, no problem. If it changes, don't worry about it. The man who comes behind me, African-American man, comes, same counter, also renting a car. Um, presumably the same question. I didn't hear it at first, but I noticed that he had to get out and he had to show his identification. And then he got out his phone and he said, Here, here's, no, I need you to email it to me. I, I need to have a copy of it. And I thought, it's the same counter, the same company, but we're, we're not having the same experience. We don't all have the same experiences, do we? And so I wonder, what does it look like for, for me uh, as a pastor, as a white male, to cross the road and consider the experience of someone else who, who might be in the same town at the same time, but is not having the same experience? What does it look like for me to cross the road and, and to enter into suffering? And I'm going to camp out right here for a minute because I think this idea of crossing the road is pivotal. We start with remembering, right? That's the first piece. We remember that we have received extravagant mercy. But, but if we don't cross the road, then I think whatever strategies we have for, for unity or reconciliation 
they're going to fall flat. We have to accept that our world is not always the world. That, that my experience is often far from normative. And that those experiences can often lead me to a skewed perspective. 1946. In 1946, there was a poll. And this statement was put in front of people. Negroes in the U.S. are being treated fairly. 1946. Do you know that 7 out of 10 white Americans said yes? 7 out of 10 white Americans. Think about what's going on in 1946. You are in the trenches of Jim Crow segregation, the horrors of the KKK, normative violence against black people with no reliable path to justice. And still, most white Americans did not see a racial problem. Think we might ever arrive at a skewed perspective? Um, this is from a Baptist publication in 1891. In 1891, a Baptist publication put out this statement. The southern whites and the southern blacks are getting along admirably and always will if blatant politicians will keep their hands off. 1891. How many of you have heard somebody say something just about like that in the last 10 years? Think that majority culture Christians aren't blind to what might be happening on the other side of the road. Uh, the week after the shooting death in 2016 of Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and the five Dallas police officers, uh, I was sitting at a Starbucks. I had a church leader who approached me to talk about the racial tension and problems in our country. Uh, and this leader told me, uh, background, we, we had operated an after-school mentoring program for quite some time. This leader pulled me to the side and he said, you know, Jeff, the only difference between those kids, the kids in your program, which were predominantly African-American, he said, the only difference between those kids and Ben Carson is that Ben Carson's mom wanted him to read. And your mom's only want their kids to qualify for welfare. That is a statement that you can only make in a Starbucks on the other side of the road. I, I mean, I, I know the, the man, and I, I think until we cross the road, until we actually cross the road and enter into the suffering of someone else, and this is, it isn't just a, a, a racial injustice. When we see someone who's suffering, I, I think whatever strategies or ideas or talking points we have, they're all going to fall flat. And call me naive or optimistic, but I think when we do, when we cross the road, when we stare into the eyes of suffering as spirit-filled people, as the spirit-filled people of God, something intuitively takes over and there's something we have to do because it's not just that the Samaritan man crossed the road, that Jesus extended mercy, or that he saw us. It's what he does when he gets there. He bandages the wounds with oil and wine. He puts him on his donkey. He puts him up in a hotel and he pays for it all. He left his credit card at the front desk and said, hey, I'll come back and pick up the tab 
It's not just that he helped. It's the kind of help that we might call reckless, over the top. And, and I think sometimes we read the story and we say, did he have to do all that? Surely he needed to help. And the Samaritan comes, unlike the other two, and he helps. But did he, did he need to do that much? Did he have to leave an open tab? And I don't know, because he never asked that question. He never asked the attorney's question. How far do I have to go? What do I need to do? Who is my neighbor? Those limiting questions. See, remember the attorney's first answer. Love God and love neighbor. Love your neighbor. The attorney knew the right question. This expert in the law, he knew what words to speak. But I don't know if he really understood the answer. Love God with every part of who you are and love your neighbor how? As you love yourself. See, that's what the Samaritan was doing. It would not have been noteworthy for the Samaritan to do everything we just described, to deploy every available resource if it were his own need. If he were caught up, if he were stripped, beaten, and left. Of course he would help himself. It would not be newsworthy. It would not catch our attention because if any of us are in need, we will do whatever we need, whatever we can, whatever is within our power to help ourselves. And this is what we're called to do, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Hold that standard in your hands for a little while. You want to know what to do in a situation? When, when you, you come across someone who is suffering? When you encounter a, a, a new refugee family that's been resettled into your city? When you, when you meet someone in your neighborhood or someone who does not live in your neighborhood who is suffering who sees the world differently from you you want to know what to do in a situation like we find ourselves in today cross the road look someone in the eye and love them the same way to the same standard that you would love yourself no less see we often have two standards they're the things we keep and the things we give away, right? Do you, you have a goodwill box at your house? Right? We've got the things we keep and we've got the goodwill. These are the things we give away. But it's not just donations to goodwill. When we think about how to help, how to be neighbors and see neighbors, there's the way we take care of ourselves, and there's the way we think about our neighbors. But, but Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The attorney had the right words, but he didn't really know the answer. And I think part of our job uh, as Christ followers is to remind ourselves that the symbol of our movement, it's not a trophy. It is a cross. And this is the paradox that we believe in. Those who try to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. We find life, real life, when we live like the Samaritan. Do you remember? After, so the first exchange, there's this expert in the law, 
He gives the right answer. And what does Jesus say in response to his answer? First answer, you love God with every part of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says what? It is. So he, he, he elevates it as most important command. And then what does he tell him to do? Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. See, one of the things I think we miss in this conversation is when we cross over to the other side of the road, when we ignore the suffering of our brothers and sisters, it's not just our brothers and sisters that we hurt. It's us. We rob ourselves of a quality of life, life to the full, that will not ever be achieved if we continue to, to love only self. I think it's one of the most profound things if, if you spend time in King's writing, the sympathy that, that King had for not just the oppressed, but for the oppressors. For what they were robbing themselves of. For, for as he looks to the, the moderate. Um, I think about the letter to the Birmingham jail and, and those people who say, he says, stand in the way of injustice. And we rob ourselves of life, real life, life to the full, when we cross over to the other side of the road and pretend to pretend that problems don't exist. When we convince ourselves that my world is the world. I think it starts, there's so much more in this parable that we don't have time for, but I think it starts when we look at the story from the vantage point of the ditch and we remember that we are recipients of extravagant mercy. We didn't earn our way here. We were extended mercy. And when we remember that, then I think we're more inclined to cross the road, to enter into the suffering of someone else and to love our neighbors the same way we love ourselves, which I'm going to tell you is going to be different. It's, it's not just a one-off thing. It's, it's learning to recognize systemic injustice and to stand up for our neighbors the same way we would stand up for ourselves. Life is found when we live like the Samaritan, living like Jesus. So I will leave you with the last four words Jesus leaves us with. Go and do likewise. have a minute to if, if there's any questions or um, or comments I, I'll tell you one other thing um, so I I did a demen project and I looked at the way pastors uh, respond to racially charged violence specifically after the the shooting deaths of Philando Castile Alton Sterling and the five Dallas police officers um, the way uh, white pastors and African-American pastors responded, you could, might guess, was not exactly the same, not even close to the same. Uh, but one of the things that I found that was really interesting is there were a number of white pastors who responded in ways that you might not predict. And as I got to know those people, I also realized that they had experiences in their life that caused them to cross the road and see things they were not inclined to see. So in Jackson, Tennessee, which is where I did my work, there were three white pastors who that next Sunday spoke to it in a significant way. Uh, and oddly enough, all three of those had experience with fosterer, fostering or adopting a non-white uh, person in their own household. Well, 
that, that's not the silver bullet, but they had a, an experience that caused them to see the world in a different, they crossed the road. And I think if you've heard Don McLaughlin talk, you, you've heard him, his phrase, tell me more. One of the greatest things we could do is, is cross the road. And before we diagnose a problem and sit around and, hey, this is why it's happening, that's why it's happening, we sit down and we say, tell me more. Because your experience might be a little different than mine. I'll be around. If you have any questions, comments, happy to take them. Thanks for being here.